How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. It says here that a bolt of lightning is going to strike the clock tower precisely 10.04 p.m. next Saturday night. If we could somehow harness this lightning, channel it into the flux capacitor, it just might work. Next Saturday night, we're sending you back to the future. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight. Memories that no longer make sense because you've traveled into the past and altered your family's personal timeline, erasing the people you all once were. That's right. Tonight, we're doing a bop in a movie commentary for the quintessential time travel movie, Back to the Future. I'm your host, Cody, and serving as my own personal stash of plutonium are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. I don't believe Michael J. Fox came out of Crispin Glover's balls. That's a fair complaint. And my other co-host, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. Uh, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but I am actually the product of my father traveling back in time and having sex with his mother. So this movie was pretty rough to go through. I'm already confused about this timeline. Could you please diagram it with a bunch of straws, possibly? And a Bruce Willis impression. That's my one looper joke for the night. Thank you. Hey, that is my You're favorite welcome. anyone describing time travel scene, though. <laughs> good, good. Anyways, enough shenanigans. We've got ourselves a classic movie here. So, folks at home, if you want to join us for this commentary series, you know the drill, but let's go through the steps. We're going to watch the movie. You have the option to watch the movie. If you want to watch along with us, we're going to have a countdown. When that countdown ends, we're going to play the movie and then talk over it. You can listen to us solo. You can listen to us with the movie. It's your life. You do you. I think they've got it all, Mike. You want to count us down? Your drink? Ah, oh, shit. This is already off the rails. Tonight, folks. <laughs> <laughs> if only you could go back in time if to the only... beginning of the episode. And then murder me for that screw-up and then replace me as a better me. Uh, we are drinking tonight, folks. Blue Hawaiians. So what you're going to need is three-fourths of an ounce light rum, three-fourths of an ounce vodka, 
I'm a Tito's man myself, but you do your thing. One ounce blue Caraco, two ounces pineapple juice, a quarter ounce simple syrup, a quarter ounce lemon juice, a quarter ounce lime juice, a pineapple wedge, and a couple of cherries. So, uh, except for those last couple of fruits, you're going to take all the ingredients, drop them into a shaker, fill that shaker with ice, give it about oh, 20 swirls, drain that into a hurricane glass filled with more ice, and then garnish it with your pineapple wedge and a cherry. Boom! You got yourself a blue Hawaiian. as a, a distinct blue mad science kind of hue to it. It would look bitchin' in a tiki mug. Hurricane glass is the suggested one, but, you know, be a rebel. Anyways... The Blue Hawaiian was originally invented by bartender Harry Yee in 1957, beating out the Elvis film by four years and actually taking its name from a Bing Crosby song, which was featured in the movie Wakiki Wedding in 1937. For Back to the Future, I felt like, you know, you had to get a 50s cocktail, so check one, and I naturally gravitated towards rum-based tiki drinks because there's just something about the idealized kitsch that's associated with that, you know, kind of perfect imaginary fake tropical vacation dropped into the Midwest suburb feel you get with a tiki drink. And that kind of reminds me of Marty's situation. Also, it's real pretty to look at, and it tastes fine too. So there's your drink for the evening. If you want to also make a drink, you can pause this commentary now, make this delicious, I haven't tried it yet, this probably delicious thing, (laughs) and then come back. Let's all find out together, folks. I, oh, I hope, no! I, I made it double, so I'm really hoping it's good, because it overflowed my <laughs> glass, and I had to pour oh, another into a shot glass. Buddy. It is primarily booze. I, I mean, there's four ounces of pineapple juice in here. It's all right. I'm impressed. I just thought you were going to go with a Roman Coke as a reference to the original version of the movie. Ooh, that is smooth. I'm glad That's it good stuff. Out. It's uh, I, I prefer a little more fruit-heavy flavor there, but, you know, it does a good job keeping the rum and vodka kind of mellow. Mike, you ready to count us down? I'm really just happy that I was able to remind you of the drink you had in front of you at the time. Technically two drinks I had in front of me because it had the overflow glass. <laughs> that you just made, not a scant it's, ten it's minutes it's ago. Fresh. Oh, I almost forgot to mention as well. Uh, if you want to get real fancy with this guy, the ice you threw in the hurricane glass, throw that into a blender, throw your drink into the blender, pulse that for a couple seconds, pour it back out. Now it's more like, you know, a nice icy smoothie. Super tropical. And that is what makes time travel possible. Uh, plutonium, the best drink. Anyway, I'm going to count to three. After I say three, we're going to press play. Hope you folks at home are ready. One, two, three. Fun fact, I briefly thought about counting it backwards, but I thought I would be a dick for doing that after all of these commentaries. Uh, now I'm disappointed. Can we scrap this and start over? Let's just like scrap this whole back- idea. This show is done. We're no longer making box office pulp. I like the idea of Back to the Future being where you show your true colors. <laughs> oh. And guys, like we immediately open with history because like this was like the first Steven Spielberg presents, wasn't it? Uh, it at least our first this... appearance of super producer Spielberg. <laughs> this was it, the it first around that time. It, this was the first non-Spielberg Amblin movie, wasn't it? I believe so. Stop asking me questions I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) To talk about why we're doing Back to the Future real quick. um, I'm sorry, you were about to say something? I wanted to talk about the intricacies of this shot because it never occurred to me what a pain in the ass this must have been until watching the special features on the disc. Hey, it's safety last. Uh, 
just think about this, folks, looking at all this stuff. All of these clocks are set to the exact same time. Big deal. You know, you set them one at a time, you get them all to sync, whatever. The problem is they all have to say a specific time for the shot. So you either have to set them and then film at that time, or you have to set them earlier and make sure they're all set by the time you're about to sit down and film the scene. Because if one's wrong, then they all got to be reset. And if you screw up the shot, then you have to reset like 27 different clocks and get them all right for the shot again, which I don't even want to think about dealing with. That sounds god-awful. And as we go through the shot, there's not even cutting. This is all a really great wonder. They kind of have like a Rube Goldberg thing going on with some of these devices. Uh, in a couple seconds, we're going to see dog food come out of a can. Apparently, the dog food <laughs> can change because they couldn't get permission for the original one they wanted to use. So they had to have like a torch off camera heating up the dog food so it would plop out of the can appropriately. Just on a technical level, this shot is amazing. And it's, it's great because I never realized what a pain in the ass this was until I was specifically told. <laughs> it is hell. And from a technical standpoint, this is a fucking miracle scene. And from a storytelling standpoint, it's a miracle scene. The entire movie is in this one like, this opening scene tells you everything, up to and including one of the first clocks you see is um, a reference to an old Harry Lloyd movie. It's a dude hanging off the clock, which sets up Doc Brown hanging off the clock tower at the end. Also, Safety last. Also, it's an in-joke because Harry Lloyd, Christopher Lloyd. <sighs> yeah, I never noticed that dude until watch, re-watching this uh, in preparation. There's a lot of little details I have not noticed, despite this being one of my favorite movies for most of my life. That's what excites me about uh, doing Back to the Future. We, we thought this would be a good companion piece to Spielberg Month for us to, to go through the Back to the Future films and provide some commentaries for them. Because I think Back to the Future is up there with one of, with that movie series... And it's considered like the, one of the greatest movie series of all time, but it's, I think the expertise of them is taken for granted a lot because it's so ubiquitous. Um, uh, it's, it's, and so ubiquitous even just with quality. When you actually stop to both delve into like the behind the scenes stories of, of how it was, how it was put together, it's incredible and it's a fucking film school class essentially. But also when you just start breaking down Everything that built this, particularly this first film, you can learn everything you need to know about, like, storytelling just from this film in such an incredible way. Oh, yeah. I feel like, like no exaggeration, listening to Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis talk about this franchise over the past two weeks has made me a better writer. Same. So one thing I wanted to comment on... We've already kind of missed it, but I love the way that Marty's introduced. We see his feet walk into frame. We hear him call for Doc. Even when he's kind of turning on the amp, we get close-up shots of his hands, his back. Here he's wearing the glasses when he gets kicked back. We don't get a proper shot of him until now. And it feels like a big buildup for this character, which makes sense now because we know Marty McFly is an iconic staple of cinema. But would he be that if he wasn't introduced and treated as if he is that iconic member of cinema? In my mind, it's a little bit of a chicken-and-the-egg situation. They have to walk the walk before people believe him. But, you know. 
what if they do that and no one believed it? It would be terrible. We'd just think, oh, God, this is so hammy. Yeah, I feel like that's the reaction they probably would have gotten if they continued with Eric Stoltz in the role. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you can't film anyone else like you film uh, Michael J. Fox specifically in this role. Like, could you imagine a nobody as Marty McFly being filmed by Dean Cundy that way? I, I don't think that would <laughs> pop at all. No. And to go back a little further, Mike, to one of the points you brought up about how people kind of dismissed the craft in this movie. I've always felt that this movie gets a little overlooked because everyone knows about it. It's on TV constantly. It's always been around. Everyone knows everything about Back to the Future, it feels like. And when something's common, we tend to look past it. Yeah. You know, Citizen Kane isn't on TV all the time, and I think that makes us stop and appreciate the craft more when you put on the DVD. And there's almost a snobbishness to it. Hey, this is a popular movie. How well can it how well done can it be? That's kind of the tragedy of the movies we hold like the closest to our heart. Is that we we don't view them as things made by people. They just feel like things that fell out of the sky, ready-made and perfect. (laughs) That that was the fascinating thing in going back and looking at previous drafts of the script in preparation. Like when Marty was a serial killer who went through time murdering until Jack the Ripper got him? Oh, yeah, it was dark. It was just the Shining Girls. It was awesome. (laughs) (laughs) You're, You're really not far off. Like, you read the first draft, and... Like all first drafts, it's just uh, two writers going, uh, this thing happens, and then this thing happens, and maybe this idea. But it's for one of the most iconic movies ever made. So like, seeing the bullshit phase, like the bullshitting phase of that, like really does make you appreciate, wow, everything had to be workshopped to perfection for any of this to work. And during the special features, they do a really rudimentary thing for breaking the story. That's so obvious, you kind of kick yourself for not realizing, oh, that's how stories should be written. They mention they write out a cue card saying, what do we want to say in this movie? All right, we want Marty to invent rock and roll. That's a funny joke. So if you have that card out there, well, then you need another card to explain that Marty can play rock and roll. So we have to establish that story beat. So you get... The story, just by breaking it down to its simplest blocks like that, just one statement on a note card, and then build off of that. What are the implications of that card you just plopped down? And by the time you're done, you should have a full story told through note cards. It's simple as hell, but hey, that's how you get a good, solid structure. And it creates something that's genius about Back to the Future, where if if you're you're used to watching it, so a movie almost exists as osmosis to you. But and it seems like it's very, um, very airy. Like it's a lot of just hanging out, and yeah, there's a plot, but it's like, oh, you know, the plot's just sort of there, because you kind of stop appreciating all of the actual work that's going into the machinations of the plot and the film, where you realize, oh, literally not a second of this movie is wasted. Everything is set up and payoff, set up and payoff, set up and payoff constantly. Every single scene, there's lines. The little tiny bits that's either a setup and a payoff for just, you know, a throwaway joke <laughs> or a larger scene or something. Zemeckis and Gale later. are the most hardcore believers in Chekhov's gun out there. <laughs> oh, yeah. Got, got 
Look at the lit- almost literal Chekhov's gun and who framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah. <laughs> and all this stuff, like Goldie for mayor. Well, we'll see that paid off and set up. There's so many different things. When Marty sees the truck in a second, same deal. That'll pay off everything that's going on. Him playing the guitar music and being told by Huey Lewis that he's too too loud. It's all going to pay off and be important. <laughs> and and what's even greater to me is I don't think we're going to talk like a ton about the sequels because we're going to be getting there for commentaries. But I love how because it's Zemeckis and Gale, they took just every single little throwaway line in here and built a trilogy out of it. Because it always has to be, it has to come from somewhere. Like, n- nothing about this movie or this or the entire trilogy is pulled out of air. Like, it's all from something within the film, within the construction and the bones. Case in point, look at Marty gazing longingly at the truck that will one day ruin his life. <laughs> <laughs> Someday... And and we'll land him in Hill in Hilldale, in the future when it's a shithole. <laughs> the amount of reverse engineered symmetry has always blown my mind with this movie. Before we get too far along here, I gotta do my Back to the Future facts. Hey, hey! Directed by Robert Zemeckis, screenplay by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. Your main cast, you've got Michael J. Fox, you've got Christopher Lloyd, Lee Thompson, Crispin Glover, Tom Wilson. Music by Alan Silvestri. Cinematography by our old buddy Dean Cundy. If we, like, made a swear jar but replaced swearing with Cundy, <laughs> we'd be rich. This pot, We could all afford really good mics. To be Every for, movie to we be, do is Cundy. To be fair, Cundy does sound like some kind of old-timey slur. So Can, can we make Cundy, Cundy into hair... sl- to our official slur for Box Office Pulp? I'm one cunty hair away from turning the show off. Uh, editing. We had to have a two-man crew because this movie had to be rushed out in time for the 4th of July holiday. And those editors were Arthur Schmidt and Harry Karamidas. Released July 3rd, 1985. Budgeted at $19 million. And that included pretty much reshooting half the film after they brought in Michael J. Fox to replace the original Marty. I think they said it was like $3 million to refilm his scenes. Uh, Anyways, grand total box office, $389 million worldwide. $210 million of that was domestic dollars. Uh, just for a quick, fun comparison, this blew my mind earlier. A Nightmare on Elm Street came out, Elm Stream. A Nightmare on Elm Street came out, uh, like six months before this movie did, and it made $25 million domestic box office, and that was phenomenal success. That was, like, people freaked out about that. They still refer to, uh, New Line Cinema as The House Freddy Built. That was $25 million. This one in America alone made $210 million six months later. That That's how Jesus. big this movie was. It was the highest grossing film of 1985. And, and to even compare that, because everyone loves hearing about money, if you look at 1985, the second highest grossing film domestically was Rambo First Blood Part 2. <sighs> That made $150 million. This made $210 million. That's the one and two. And then three was Rocky Four, The Color Purple, Out of Africa, Cocoon, Jewel of the Nile, Witness, The Goonies, Spies Like Us. God damn, Back to the Future made bank. It's insane how much money that was. In 1985, $210 million is just an astronomical amount. I don't know what it is adjusted for inflation, but it has to be just astounding. 
Also, if anyone's curious about numbers, because this is the only thing I ever want to do with my life is just look up box office information. 1984 was fucking bananas. Beverly Hills Cop was the number one movie of 1984. That one made $234 million. That's right. Beverly Hills Cop actually outgrossed a year before Back to the Future in America. As did Ghostbusters, the number two movie of the year. 1984 was stacked, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and God, could you imagine a high-concept, high-budget comedy that does not have a superhero in it, like, making that kind of serious bank it, like in the modern movie scene? It really, it really makes you think about just how much movies have changed since then. Well, that's the thing. A movie comes out now and goes, oh, it made $100 million? That's pretty good. But you just kind of shrug at it. Like, $100 million isn't impressive. But, you know, 30 years ago, oh my god, that movie made $100 million? Dear god, you have to make 13 sequels right now. That movie made back its budget? <laughs> well, we're living in an age now where films cost $200 million, and then marketing is probably another $200 million, and there's back-end deals and everything else. It can it can be tough to make money now. It's you got to be a worldwide enterprise for it to work out. Times is different. It's actually one of my favorite parts about this film and watching it right now. Back to the Future, May nineteen eighty five. Marty goes back thirty years into the past. We're not quite thirty years into the future. We're a little bit more than that, uh, but you know, close enough. We're at the point now where we're equidistant from the movie and the place that it took past into the past. And I kind of like that idea because we can look back at Marty's age and feel as alien as he felt when he went to the 50s. Oh, yeah. That's all I could think of whenever I was rewatching this. It's like, look at how weird Marty looks with, <laughs> with that jacket. That does look like a life preserver. The 50s was right. Everything's a cycle. Another thing that's kind of fascinating to me here is if if this had been made by someone like Disney because they they shot this movie around Disney was one of the one of the groups interested in possibly making it but they said it was you know outside of what they would do it's a little too dark and boy just imagine if this was made nowadays for a major studio how many of these elements do you think would get through in the same way do you think Marty's mom would be Pretty much an alcoholic. I feel like this movie would have been made, but it would have been like an R-rated sex comedy. They could have gone for that, or I think they would have toned down some of the more risque elements. Not that this movie is meatballs, but... You know, there, there's it stuff here that's a little bit edgier. It, it, it would have had a lot, I think, of... Um... More four quadrant. Yeah. A lot of what makes Back to the Future Back to the Future, I think, would have been removed. Like, just the little bits. Like, you, like you even bring up the alcoholism thing. Like, it's not really a big part of the film at all. It's just a very subtle thing in this one scene. That wouldn't have been in there. But it oddly... And it used kind for of a joke. Alcoholism used yeah. as a joke, I think. <laughs> you can use it for dramatic purposes. Like, oh, a character's smoking a cigarette. He's going to learn to quit that in the proper future. I guess we get the same thing here with the alcoholism, but this isn't a dramatic learning lesson. It's just, ah, isn't it funny? She's out of shape and drinking booze and, you know, their uncle's in jail. 
But they still kind of use it for a subtle moment later when he tells young Lorraine to, you know, you don't want to form a habit. Like, they, you can tell there's, like, yeah. thoughts on it Marty has. And that's as, it's like as in-depth they, as they get on it. <laughs> So take a moment. Crispin Glover. <laughs> Look at Crispin Hellion Glover. One A he's a double edged sword. Cause boy, what a weirdo. But man, that's what the role requires. If George McFly was just boring, eh, who cares? Yeah, your dad's boring. Dads are sometimes boring. Yeah. This dad is like a boring fucking lame weirdo. It's perfect. And that laugh, oh it's like, oh no, I married Fran Drescher. Oh, yeah, seeing the difference between uh, George on the page and George as performed by Crispin Glover is night and day. Especially in the earlier drafts where he's not even really a wimpy nerd. He's just a boring 50s dude. <laughs> and this, the story is more about trying, just trying to make him a cool guy rather than him fighting for himself. And But... That performance, like, they don't have to tell you a single thing about George McFly. The second you get to that laugh, you know exactly who George McFly is. <laughs> They've done all the exposition. That's really it. It's it's economy and storytelling. Just if your actor's good enough, you don't have to tell us. They'll show you. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Here now, another moment of iconic filmmaking. We're seeing the DeLorean, the time machine. And it gets Einstein turning his head. This low dramatic reveal, the, the mystery bells from Silvestri, the smoke, followed by these kind of triumphant stingers. They sell the hell out of you thinking this is a cool scene. And it works because all these years later, 30 plus years later, we look at the DeLorean and we go, wow, that's an iconic piece of cinema history. Now imagine if they cut the scene and the DeLorean just rolled out and they just kind of shrugged. Would we think of the DeLorean the same way? I kind of feel like unless they sell us on how iconic this is, we won't believe it's iconic. I th that's really just Zemeckis' style in general, I feel. He's like the he's kind of like the Alex Ross of directors. Like He can't yeah. not make everything feel like <laughs> the most important thing in the world. Yeah, I, I'm just thinking of... You guys have seen Dr. No, right? The first James Bond movie. Yeah. Yes. Even in that one, when they introduce James Bond, he does the Bond. James Bond. And like the camera kind of stops and it almost feels like someone has just scratched a record and the room has gone silent. Just imagine if James Bond was introduced like, who's this? Hello, Bond. And they moved on. Oh, you mean his first introduction in that TV special from the 50s? Where he's don't Jimmy talk Bond? about Casino Royale. <laughs> Just some dude as James Bond. American James Bond. Anyways, the larger point I'm trying to reach here is I think in filmmaking, people kind of roll their eyes when people go big in film and you do these showstopper moments where you're introducing a character or an idea. But that's what we remember. That's what your mind holds on to. And you think, wow, that was something, wasn't it? And if you don't do that, it just doesn't hold. Like you were saying about Zemeckis, he has a great propensity for that, and that's why there are so many memorable parts to the Back to the Future franchise. Get showy, goddammit, Hollywood. And you can and you can feel when a movie is taking itself seriously, even 
maybe kind of a silly way or a fun way. It's like, oh, it's selling you on this. Like, it's 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 got something to at least try to say about whatever it's it, whatever it's showing you that maybe doesn't make a lot of sense at the moment, but it has conviction on how it's showing it. So, <laughs> well, it has that same magic tone that Ghostbusters has, where you're watching a comedy that is dead serious to everyone inside of that universe. Yeah. But no, yeah. there aren't really jokes. It's just a ridiculous circumstance that you can laugh at. Like, you could remove the more humorous elements and just do this as a straight story. Oh, yeah, yeah. it's a straight sci-fi movie. I was, so, I was saying that to you the, uh, the other night, Jamie, that the, this and Ghostbusters are, like, in the exact same camp. Like, they're intertwined in my head. It's like, this is what, like, a great comedy is to me. And it's because, like, I miss studio comedies like this. There's no, like you said, there's no jokes in the movie. It happens to be funny. And it's constructed and designed with it being funny secondary to it being a movie, which is which is what works so well about it. To me, the funniest part of the film, really, is the dynamic between... Marty and Doc Brown. It's brilliant because they're both not doing jokes, but they're not doing straight man. They're doing like a perversion of straight man where Marty reacts off of Doc. But he's not the straight man. He he's exaggerating his responses. The and a DeLorean? You know, he, he has a comedy <laughs> spin on his reactions. And Doc Brown is so animated, he's the comedy character. So instead of doing one where a guy lobs the ball up and the other guy smacks it out of the park, you have both of these guys throwing the balls at themselves somehow, or to each other, I suppose, and smacking them out of the park. It's a two-hander, and it's brilliant. You have two different approaches to the comedy, and both of them have their strengths they're working on. With Marty, it's kind of the everyman crazed reaction of, what the hell is this? And Doc Brown is the bigger-than-life wacky character. I love it. You don't get a lot of movies that can manage that well. Or we even want to take that risk where both characters are trying to get laughs. On top of that, one of my favorite parts of the documentary is them mentioning when they showed this to a test audience, they weren't told what this movie was. They didn't know what Back to the Future was. They were told it was a time travel movie. I don't even know if they were told it was No, they weren't told anything. Nothing. So they get in and the audience didn't know it was a comedy. And at this point, they hadn't attuned to the fact that you're really supposed to laugh and they saw a dog had just disappeared and the audience was concerned this was going to be like a scary sci-fi film or like something bad had happened to the dog and once they find out the dog is okay then they realize oh we can laugh this is a funny movie well it didn't occur to me until uh re-watching it for this episode like for the first time in many many years doc brown is kind of terrifying before you meet him Oh, like, yeah. Why, why is he doing all that stuff with the clocks? What's going on? Why does he have that plutonium? You, They is build even... up Doc so goddamn much before he arrives. Dressed like a supervillain. <laughs> I will say, another really lucky accident with the film. Michael J. Fox is a not-a-tall dude. Christopher Lloyd is not super, super tall. He's something like 6'1", if I remember right. So the difference in their height is sizable. To get around this, they have to do all sorts of creative framing ideas. Like in this one, 
Doc Brown has to be sitting down and sort of slouched. But when they're standing up and talking to each other, they're constantly kind of moving in different directions. Marty will move to the camera. Doc Brown will move away from the camera. So that way they can both be in the frame. And, you know, one isn't towering over the other or having his head cut off. The benefit of this is it makes all the exposition so dynamic. You watch those guys running around the screen and just frantically gesturing and shouting out this time travel gobbledygook. And it doesn't matter. You kind of just buy into it and you feel excited. They're explaining science and I feel excited. (laughs) That's amazing. That's why you get Dean Cundy to film your fucking movie, man. <laughs> it's it's wonderful choreography. Just the idea of how do we get these guys together and not have them look boring or weird. They'll move. They'll move back and forth. And that's unusual. Even to today, if you see characters talking to each other, uh, the big example I can think of is Peter Jackson hates doing exposition because he, he just thinks it's so boring. So he'll add as many cuts as he can to exposition scenes. Watch something like The Frighteners. And when characters are talking... He'll just like suddenly do a quick, quick close up and then he'll pan back or jump back out and it's quick cuts. That's how he adds the energy to him. He's just moving the camera as much as possible. This is the inverse of that. He has the actors move as much as possible. And I think this is a great solution. It draws you in with the longer takes and you just follow the performances. And it creates such, it creates such amazing depth of field too, which you don't really see that much in modern movie making. Well, it's not a comedy. It's still so alive. Well, you think modern comedy, the approach right now is you want characters to sit down and improvise and throw out funnier and more outlandish jokes back and forth until they get the funniest combination of the script. Which is fine, but you can't plan around that. It's pure improv. It's just creativity. So the camera just kind of gets planted and you do cuts back and forth between the two actors shouting out different lines they think are funny that don't even necessarily have a great connection or flow. And I think that ruins some of the chemistry between the leads. It definitely ruins the dynamicism that's there, and it makes it feel a little more, eh, cut and paste. And you'll see that a lot, too. In a normal comedy made these days, there'll be an extended edition with, like, 30 more jokes crammed in when they don't have to meet a timeline and make the movie two hours long. Yeah, This I've... is my old man way of saying, comedies <laughs> were funnier in my day. Well, it's frustrating whenever you see perfectly good comedies ruined by that sort of thing. Like uh, Easy A, uh, the Emma Stone movie is a great like recent example. That movie has a really amazing like award-winning script. That movie is borderline unwatchable because of the amount of bad ad-libbing that was crowbarred into it. Yeah, and I, I don't want to get against ad-libbing here either because there are great ad-lib parts to this movie. Uh, Tom Wilson brings a lot of his character to life just with his own thoughts, like Butthead. That was a thing he thought would be funny to throw in there. Or Make Like a Tree and Leave. Also, his improv. So it can work. It can be added into the script and work naturally. But I think too much of it gets away from the fact that a lot of planning typically goes into the best movies. I I just think it's it's a matter of what you're shooting for. Like, if you're kind of making just a sitcom of a movie, then, yeah, I want to see a bunch of funny people just kind of goof around for 90 minutes. Whenever that gets inserted in movies that are plot-focused, that can really create a whiplash of comedic tones. Yeah, for sure. And again, I I complain about this, but I still love those kind of movies, too. Uh, The Interview... With Seth Rogen, 
definitely is one of those films where it's like the improv back and forth and just kind of plant the camera, even though it's a plot-heavy film. But in that one, it, it all comes together for me anyways. So I, I shouldn't say that all movies that focus on that kind of improv set are wrong or bad. Nah. Look, if we didn't have improv movies, we wouldn't have uh, Will Ferrell and the Wedding Crashers walking downstairs dramatically with nunchucks around his neck. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jack, no! But it's, um... What's so impressive to me about this movie is how, like, going back to, like, the blocking, how many things that are um so ingrained about what Back to the Future is or what even... Back to the Future created, like, filmmaking-wise off of it was from necessity. Like, the blocking, which I've, you know, you consider, like, classic, like, Back to the Future block, the walking back and forth it's in every movie. You've seen things imitate that, like, a thousand times since Back to the Future. Necessity. Like, th- storytelling things. Marty has a brother and sister because of necessity, because of, uh, to to get the ages right for, like, their parents and stuff. And it's not be, and it's not like done to me like haphazardly. Like you find a lot of movies are created, you know, oh, it's a classic. And I was just kind of like to the people making it, they kind of bullshit together, but it, it's actually, there's a lot of, um, artistry that goes into solving the problems that would arise with back to the future. Like, okay, we need to do, okay, we have a, how do we get to C? This is what we build B out of. Okay, now now how do we get to D? And it's all just one, like, long road. They're just, like, building brick by brick. Well, and every facet of production is impacted by these little changes, too. Before, we are talking about the blocking, so just specifically the cinematography. But the fact that there's such a height difference between Marty and Doc Brown means Christopher Lloyd adjusted his performance and slouches a lot of the movie so he can be closer in height to Marty which just becomes part of the character. How he reacts to everything is included in that slouch. Or even parts of it like casting. Like, okay, this love interest is too tall. We have to fire her and find someone a little shorter. Or my favorite thing, like my favorite casting story in the world in this movie. We have to find somebody bigger than Eric Stoltz, who's very, (laughs) very tall. So let's get Tom Wilson. Oh no, we have Michael J. Fox, who's five foot two. So King Kong is the villain of this movie now. That works even better, though, when when exactly. Michael J. Fox goes to punch Biff inside of uh, the cafeteria, and he stands up and he has to sell that he's so much bigger than him. He doesn't have to do much. He just has to stand up, and you believe, like, oh, no, Marty's going to die here. <laughs> Biff feels like a special effect. I th- always <laughs> thought he was forced perspective for the longest time. I didn't know... Tom Wilson was just that friggin' tall. How tall is Tom Wilson? Does anyone does anyone offend? I like have the internet. Six foot two, six foot three. Something like that. Oh, so he has no trouble on Tinder. Hmm <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Tom Wilson is six foot four, according Jesus. to Jesus. That is damn. a mountain of a man. That's a basketball player there. But even like the fact that the car is a DeLorean is it's a DeLorean because of this scene. They need something to look like a spaceship. The door, the doors of the DeLorean open that way. It looks like a spaceship. Let's use a DeLorean. Oh, those darn gold doors. Also, it's filled with cocaine, so if the movie doesn't work mm. out, we can just sell this. <laughs> we can retire rich. Rich as Nazis. Um, I loved all the making of stuff where they're showing 
Michael J. Fox sitting inside the DeLorean trying to like energetically act in it and just being the shit out of his hand, just like <laughs> accidentally punching the dashboard or all the props they had inside of there. The DeLorean looks like a terrible car, but as a child, I imagined how cool it would be to have one. Also, Marty's just dead. Those bullets went through the door you're standing in. It's okay. The DeLoreans are bulletproof. <laughs> they can't like, go okay. to 88 miles an hour, but I, they're bulletproof. Okay, I love how violent this goddamn shotgun is. When he blows up the mailbox, it's, it's like the most impactful shotgun blast I've ever seen in my life. Look at that thing. They put way <laughs> too much gunpowder in there it's for that so cartoon whatever they used. I love it. Also, I've never in my life in 28 years of watching this movie, gotten the Twin Pines joke until last week. <laughs> that is such uh, a beautiful, subtle joke. My Pines! It, it, I don't think I got the the sign was changed at the very end of the movie, the mall sign, until I was like 17. Well, someone had to tell me about it. I saw it like an IMTP. Well, I also, this here... This is the most obvious thing in the world. The line estates, lines. For some reason, I was too dumb to ever connect that. Wait, that's where Marty lived. That's his house in that field. <laughs> Just, somehow I completely missed out on like obvious movie making 101. Because he walks by those things. They're all graffitied up at the start of the movie. And he just never connected to me. A lot of this stuff did get cut out in a lot of the, uh, the cable plays, which, I mean... If you Very grew true. up in our generation, Back to the Future marathons on TNT were just what you did during the summer. Yeah. Right. That's the amazing thing to me about Back to the Future. It's such a big part of my childhood. I can't tell you when I first saw it. It was just always there. It's like your parents. When was the first time you met your dad? You don't remember. He's just always there. Yeah. So, like, I, Back to the Future, I just knew the plot, but I can't remember ever one time sitting down and consciously thinking, I should watch this. What is this? You just know it. You grow up with this knowledge of Back to the Future, kind of like it's math or something. It's a little weird. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was the same uh, for you, you guys, but this and Ghostbusters had the same effect on me as a kid. Whenever I'd get in trouble uh, during first grade for drawing flux capacitors and proton packs in my book <laughs> instead of listening to the teacher, I, these weren't comedies to me. <laughs> like they, I, I viewed them the way you view a, like a Marvel movie now. Like, no, this is just these are just science fiction stories that have comic relief in them. No, yeah. like I am invested in all of these stakes as if this were like a Martin Scorsese movie. I have two points about that. One with Ghostbusters, I actually do remember the first time I watched that. For some reason, really? I missed it. I missed out on it till I was I was still pretty young. But my sister was hanging out at her boyfriend's house, and she had to, like, take me along to babysit. And I remember the boyfriend saying, hey, have you ever seen Ghostbusters? And I went, no, what's Ghostbusters? And he's like, hey, buddy. And then he just sat me in a room and played Ghostbusters, and they went off and did whatever they did. That's it was awesome. Dan Aykroyd gets a blowjob. It was perfect for them because they got to hang so out with her, like, her little brother around, and I got to watch Ghostbusters. And it was one of those deals where you watch it for the first time, you're like, oh my god! Like you said, to me, Ghostbusters wasn't a comedy. It was a scary story with ghosts and scientists trying to beat ghosts. That movie works very well on young children because they can take it that way. They they kind of mm. can ignore the comedy elements and appreciate the other genres going for. Point two, the 1950s setting here. Totally unrelated to everything we're just talking about. 
Good. We're on a studio lot, and it should be obvious. I mean, everything is so controlled here, and everything is so 1950s, you can tell they didn't just throw some set dressing on like a real business street somewhere. But that's perfect. In my mind, if you're doing a time travel movie where a character goes from the current time back to the past, there's always going to be that inherent element of foreignness, strangeness, idealization, nostalgia going on that a backlot kind of represents perfectly. Yeah, I think this Zemeckis... isn't the real 50s. This is this is like the imagined 50s of someone living, you know, 30 years after that happened. Someone born 30 years after that happened, 20 years after that happened. Yeah, I think Zemeckis like flat out said something to the effect of, yeah, we want it to look like a backlot because we want to make people nostalgic for 50s movies. Like, right. We're not we're not expecting people who remember the 50s to watch this movie. We want to get teenagers who have grown up watching movies set in this, these eras, which is yeah. really a stroke of genius. Yeah. And I think that's brilliant. And it it works really well. Also, if you ever do the uh, Universal Backlot Tour, uh, I believe it's the California one, they, they will kind of drive you around and show you some of the locations. The original courthouse tower area burned down, I think, in like the 90s, and they just rebuilt it the same way. But that area, that kind of commons area he walked by, has been used in dozens of different TV shows and movies in the past. And it's amazing because those guys have to go out there. And and the deal they have, from my understanding on the tour, was uh, production can essentially say, hey, we're taking the lot. And they can make whatever changes they want. They can, like, build a house. They can uh, put grass all over what would be a parking lot and call it a field. But when they're done filming, they have to rip all that up and return it back to the original setting so the next production can go in and use it as they expect it to be and then make their changes. So the area never actually changes permanently, but it changes constantly. Another point on the idea of iconic filmmaking, we had iconic introductions for Marty and the DeLorean, but the introduction for a young George McFly is so understated, it undercuts everything I was saying before and is brilliant. <laughs> Like, you see Marty sit down, and you see George do the exact same hand motions, and you don't notice he's right there until Biff calls him out and pulls him up. And it works wonderfully as a joke. And instead of going the route of, this is an iconic character, you realize, this is a nothing character. Again, it serves the story, and it's funny, and it's a smart choice all around by the filmmakers. Especially whenever you look at the end of the movie, where you do get that like Alex Ross hero shot of George raising his fist at the end. Oh, yeah. Like, you're meeting that character for the first time at the end of the movie? Well, that goes along with Sylvester's score. He gets kind of that swell of music, and you realize, he is a hero now. What a man. Also, hey, 50s Billy Zane. <laughs> Fetch me a dream. It's too bad Tunnel you don't get some for of the life. other scenes. Did he just lean back in the car <laughs> to wave at us? I'm sorry, Mike. That that touched me deep inside. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> So this is the point you realize how good the old age makeup was. Obviously, oh, yeah. it has aged, haha, and there's some of the neck appliances that look like someone glued gills onto people. <laughs> Strickland but, is a monster. Oh, God, he's terrible. Someone kill him with fire. But compare to this, Crispin Glover at his natural age at the time of filming <laughs> compared to Crispin Glover as we've in- been introduced to him. And it's just such a night and day difference, and you buy it. Like, it's not perfect application work, but it's goddamn 1984 when they're filming this. It's it's not going to be perfect. It's pretty damn good, though, and it holds up mostly well. It's better than the, any of the makeup they used for the sequels, which has always Ooh. confused me. They went too far in the old age. 
Yeah, I mean, whenever I was a kid, it never occurred to me that Crispin Glover was young. I just thought he was. I thought they did the Watchmen thing where, oh, they just cast a dude in his thirties and they aged him up and aged him down. They found his dad or something. Hey, do you want to be in a movie? That You're doing Glover on a bicycle. Also, a weird thing to think about. Everyone like the the popular culture of uh, the popular notion of Back to the Future is it's an effects movie, and that's definitely true of parts two and three. But part one. There's only a handful of special effects shots. There's a couple of practical effects like the old age makeup. But by and large, this movie does not have a lot of practical or special effects going on. It's it's actually kind of stunning when you back and think about it. Like it doesn't fit into your notion of what the movie really is. Yeah, it's the gimmick. It's not what the film is at all. Also, does this scene always give you Halloween vibes? Oh Very god, yeah. So. Especially that opening shot where Mike Marty's just standing like Michael Myers. They had to Every have filmed time. in like the same goddamn neighborhood, right? It looks so similar. So uh, going back to um like the fifties design, it, it it never occurred to me um until like looking at behind the scenes stuff and hearing people talk about it. As I always thought all the products throughout the movie were just done with like product placement deals. I didn't know they were done specifically because those companies had logos which changed between the fifties and the and the eighties. So they did though they they chose some over other ones who they would have gotten more money from, but their logos were the same, so they chose not so Zemeckis wouldn't go with them because he wanted the feeling of similarity. Like, mm-hmm. Marty would be in a place that had things that were similar that he's used to, but they'd be slightly different, so it would be have an alien quality to it. Oh, yeah. And it works out great, because you look at those logos, and you're familiar with what they look like in 2019, and a lot of them actually are fairly similar to what you would have seen a decade or two or three decades ago, but all the way back to the 50s, that was a different ballpark for advertising. Also, a lot of uh, companies that have gone out of business, so that's kind of fun, too, when you see all that stuff like, oh, wow, all the way back in the 50s, that's so long ago, most of these didn't survive. It's a fun history lesson. Uh, Also, how she says hope chest always amuses the shit out of me. (laughs) (laughs) It always feels like some weird, like, super deep cut innuendo that you're not old enough to get. <laughs> but no, it's just exactly what it sounds like. Who has a hope uh, chest, though? Really? Come on. Was it Leia Thompson, I, an actress who's in this film because Eric Stoltz was once in this film? <laughs> it's amazing the weird six degrees of separation here. Like, Michael J. Fox wanted to be in this because he liked Crispin Glover when they worked together. All comes together. To back up just a second, they make a comment on the fact that he's wearing Calvin Klein underwear, purple underwear, and what a weird mind-bending thing this is for people in the 50s. But you think about it, 30 years isn't that long. That's, you know, not even half the life expectancy of uh, the average person in the United States. That's a pretty big change. Just to go from the idea of underwear doesn't have logos on it or designer names or color. And it's kind of fascinating from the 50s to the 80s what a big change that was 
And now another 35 years later from the 80s to now, how everything is so different for us, you know, just looking at that shitty black and white TV has got to fiddle with, or the lack of technology, or how the cars are designed. And you realize, that wasn't that long ago. The 1950s are not that long ago, and yet it feels like such an alien world. That's Things change of- fast. I don't like it. Change is bad. <laughs> well, that's what's great about uh, them using the dichotomy between 85 and 55, because, like... The mid fifties were like right. runs in thirty year cycles. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And the fifties were like right on the cusp of things beginning to change more rapidly. Yeah, the invention of yeah. Compution Compution. 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 <laughs> well, listen, it's just well, I should have had supper tonight. Once again, like things I've ne- I've taken for granted with this film, uh, just from it being so used to having it around. Like, when you start breaking it down, just watching it from, like, a storytelling perspective, like, oh, there's, like, a whole point in this movie about, like, the 50s, this pristine thing of, like, nostalgia that you remember of better times, like, what Lorraine was talking about and whatnot. Like, oh, the film's actually making a point, like, 55, 85, pretty much the same thing, just has a different veneer on it. Like, all yeah, of... it's just an attitude. Yeah, it's like they're watching TV during dinner, just like they did in the 80s. Um... Like, a lot of... Um, it's just the technology is different. Yeah, there's a lot of symmetrical jokes. That, uh, some are subtle, some are more obvious, that you just take as, uh, oh, they're symmetrical jokes. Like, oh, no, they're actually a comment things of, like, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Like, Strickland calling Marty a slacker, him calling George a slacker. Like, it's a symmetrical joke for earlier in the movie, a, a reference back. It's a setup and payoff, once again. But it's also, it's a comment on that theme. Yeah. Yeah, something I was gonna say that's something about the ending that really never occurred to me because like in preparation for the commentary, I just did something I don't think I've ever done in my life and just watched the movies by themselves days apart to try to take them in as their own thing and not as one long movie, like they were always aired on cable. And when you watch the ending of this movie as the ending of this movie and not as a sequel tease that like that clicks like, Oh, like this ending is, it really is a joke. Like it's Marty McFly, the ultimate teenager having to go into the future to teach his no good kids a thing or two. <laughs> Cause the more things change, the more they yeah. stay the same. It's all in cycles. I've always been fascinated by stories about like Pompeii because you know, everyone died there and was cased in ash. So everything was frozen in time. And you realize, oh, wow, they were really goddamn the same as us. Like, they, they found one of a guy masturbating who just was surprised by the volcano <laughs> killing him. <laughs> uh, there's there's graffiti that they've uncovered in Pompeii where it's all stuff like, for a good time, seek out so-and-so's name. You know, it's, it's really like the same kind of graffiti you would see in a gas station truck stop. Like, it, that was thousands of years ago, and it, it hasn't changed. It's... I think people change, but we have guidelines. You know, we're, we're, we're still basically the same as you've always been. Our humor hasn't maybe changed that much, but our settings have been evolved, so we kind of go along with that. Oh, God, look at the way we consume media. Like, if there's anything that seems to have changed profoundly more, it's that, but... 
you look at the Victorian era, and Sherlock fans were fucking insane. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and all stuff any- like lolcats? That was like a... a- Goddamn, in the 1800s, there were newspaper editorial cartoons that essentially used the same speech. It's fascinating to realize, oh, all the stupid shit we did, they, they did theirs. They just had to put it on a printing press. Victorian lolcats had funny captions about food that were phrased in baby talk. It's the same. <laughs> like, what did, what did people uh, like around the factory talk about back then on their lunch breaks? The new Charles, Dick- the new Charles Dickens novel? <laughs> like that, that that was their water cooler conversation I, the, the formula never changes just the context that's a much better way of saying what i was trying to get at thank you <laughs> that's what i do uh, if only my drinks weren't gone <laughs> okay so We're... this is a wonderful touch i've always really liked marty hanging on that lamp and it's it's a small thing but i think it's a choice probably brought about by the actor I have no way of knowing that for sure. It's not like Zemeckis is going to tell me, no, I directed him to hang on that lamp. In my mind, I I feel like that's something Marty probably thought about. How do I interact with these props? And it's just a thing he did. He leaned against it while he's acting. And that's why Michael J. Fox makes this role work. He does those little things where he interacts with the world. He acts exasperated. He reacts to everything around him. He makes this character feel alive which is something a lesser actor wouldn't be able to accomplish. They would stand there, say their lines with Doc, they wouldn't move, they would just spit it out, get done what was on the page, and then call it a day and go home. More impressive, considering this is a guy who was also filming a sitcom in the morning, would jump in a van, drive to the set, start acting from like 6 to 2 in the morning, sleep on the way home for a couple of hours, then get up and start the sitcom job again. This is a man with no sleep, like a, a 22, 23-year-old who is just giving it his all on two separate projects. That's an amazing work ethic. And think, for the sequel, he was doing that with a pregnant wife. Like Michael J. Fox makes me feel like a lazy piece of shit. I know, I hate him. How dare he? What a goddamn god, honestly. A tiny, tiny god. Then he, then he has Parkinson's, and he still does work as in voice acting instead of giving up and feeling sad about himself. I hate him. He made Spin City work. Ugh, <sighs> oh, it's true. He made me feel empathy for Republicans. <sighs> Impossible. I, I like how you reacted to that, like someone racing a, a cross to Dracula. <laughs> in, Jamie, in my house, I was actually doing the Dracula-like hands across my face block so you, you nailed it <laughs> i know all your the sound way across effects so the country well from minnesota to alabama <laughs> just <laughs> as long as we're talking about michael j fox and christopher lloyd let's just spend a few minutes talking about these two actors because god damn michael j fox brings to life this character who in in a lot of ways be forgettable he makes a guy that seems cool, like he can play guitar, he's got a hot girlfriend, he, he skateboards, but also has to be a nerd. Like, he gets beat up by Biff, he's not, like, actually leading the band at school. He's a bit of an underdog, despite seeming cool. You want to be Marty, but you realize he's not as good as he could be. And Christopher Lloyd, the guy just gives such an energetic, weird performance that doesn't feel like he's doing an insane character that's just there for laughs. Like, obviously, it's 
oversized, but what he's doing all works and connects and kind of fits in with his personality. Somehow he makes something that seems like a, a cartoon seem like a character, like a real person. And the two of them working against each other is just magical to watch. Case in point. <laughs> okay, someone tell me if I'm wrong, but okay, so Doc's wearing a white tie against a white shirt. Correct. Now, is that a setup for him wearing a clear tie at the very end? I would say I could not easily see that. Direct. I wouldn't say directly, but I think they probably thought that joke was funny, and then separately thought, oh, a clear tie in the future is funny because it's purposeless, and just repeated the same joke, essentially, with a future setting on him. <laughs> So that sexy-ass photo of Einstein up there. <laughs> he makes Edison look okay. Uh, and going back to, like, uh, how good the old age makeup and the uh, elderly performances are in this movie, I just always assumed Christopher Lloyd was in his 60s. Right. And they did always yeah. some color to his hair for this. I never knew, really noticed they put that much makeup on. Uh, John Mulaney, in, in one of his recent comedy stand-ups, uh, mentions this. Like, Back to the Future, it's a weird movie. Marty's going to be partnered up with a doctor who's 40 or 80. We don't know. <laughs> Which might be the best possible way to describe Christopher Lloyd in any role he's ever had. Until he was actually, like, 80. Then you realize, like, oh, that's what 80-year-old Christopher Lloyd looks like. So he's one of those guys I've just always assumed was 60 years old, like Leslie Nielsen. Like, I just assumed he was always old. It, like, the only thing where he really looks young is Buckaroo Ponzi, because I, I think oh. he has, like, jet black hair in that. Uh, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, too. He he looks young in that. But same deal, oh, yeah. like, his hair is shorter, and it's, it's natural, like, you know, and, like a brown. Let's not even talk about Taxi, where he looks like fucking Lance Henriksen currently. Oh, yeah. Oh. That was weird. weird. Yeah. Let's, uh, uh, moving past. Uh, <laughs> another weird thing about time travel movies. Mm-hmm. Actually, this is just a weird thing about time in general. I was, I was reading the Dark Tower series a while back, and a character is impressed by the fact that vending machines take dollar bills. And I was so confused and blown away by that, because I'm like, my entire life, vending machines have taken dollar bills, and I remember that character was, like, from 1950, and they were traveling through time as the books progress. It turns out, vending machines that accepted uh, dollar bills weren't invented until, like, 1965. And vending machines uh, were first made in, like, the 1880s. It's just kind of crazy to me that there there's that many changes within a lifetime. You know, someone could go from the 50s of thinking, oh, they've always been this way. They only take quarters to give me a dollar bill. I want a Snickers. Well, shit, in the first draft, all of the uh, time travel footage was actually just recorded on a tape recorder because home video cameras weren't a thing in 1982. Oh, I have to interrupt. So here we have a kick me sign. I have some history to share. Oh, no. <laughs> I had to look this up because I was confused and like a kick me sign. Did, did Back to the Future make the kick me sign? Or is that like a popular joke in the 50s or where did it come from? Turns out way older than the 50s. So, April Fool's Day's 
uh, April Fool's Day, pardon, was introduced in the 1700s to Scotland. It had kind of like originated in England and uh, France had gotten really into it. So Scotland got it. And Scotland loved April Fool's Day so much that they broke it into two days. Jesus. And the second day was primarily focused on ass-based pranks and jokes. <laughs> this is fucking magical. So in Scotland, April Bring Fool's back. Day 2 was all about fart jokes and the invention of the kick-me sign to kick people in the ass. So that of got course it's from ported Scotland. over into popular culture because the Scots just loved kicking each other in the ass and saying April Fool's. Okay, so another thing here, Crispin Glover's comedy reaction there of just being denied and kind of walking <laughs> off. It's so subtle. It's so subtle and phenomenal, and no one will ever appreciate it. They always want to say Christopher Lloyd is amazing, Michael J. Fox is amazing, Biff is fantastic. That's all correct, but he gets underappreciated for the work he's putting in here. As a minor, kind of purposely designed, forgettable character, he is doing everything he can to make his character hilarious. Also, I love Man About Town, Doc Brown. I love his hat so much. It's a great look. <laughs> what would you call that shirt? It's not really Hawaiian. It's not really Paisley. He's a rich, old. rich man. It's old man. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to go to a Goodwill, apparently, to find this. I'm sure it's one of what something one of the later Doctors Who will wear. <laughs> But it, yeah, Crispin Glover ceremonial and Tom ritual, Lowe. by the way. <laughs> uh, uh, what was it? Oh yeah, Crispin Glover and Tom Wilson really are the unsung heroes of this franchise. I mean, Wilson, I feel like gets some recognition. Uh, people, people know him as Biff. Speaking of which, have you guys seen the postcard? Tom Wilson gives out when people ask him about Back to the Future. Oh, yeah. I've got a copy up. I want to read it. Uh, cut me off if there's more important things because it's fairly long. I just want to say one thing in regards to Glover. Look at the one strand of hair out of place dangling down. Apparently that is he was so very weird. Apparently he was very obsessed hair. with his hair. I, and I do want to bring up um, actually this scene. Once, once again, a scene no one ever really talks about. It's like, it's kind of a heartfelt, kind of important scene, like, between Marty and George, where Marty realizes something about his father. Just, it's uncharacteristic almost for the rest of the film. Uh, you just get this stopping, uh, serious moment where Marty actually gets to, uh, truly see, like, who his father is, like, underneath all of the, uh, the loserdom that he's used to. And they actually connect, since they both are doing something creative that doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> Let the man publish his fanfic. <laughs> so anyways, that Biff, point. Tom Wilson, is so sick of answering Back to the Future questions that when people approach him and ask him about it, he will give them this card that says, I'm Tom Wilson. I was in all three Back to the Future movies. Michael J. Fox is nice. I'm not in close contact with him. Christopher Lloyd is nice. He is a very shy man. Crispin Glover is unusual, but not as unusual as he sometimes presents himself. We got along nicely. Lee Thompson is nice. Eric Stoltz originally played Marty, but was fired due to performance issues. My first movie was shot in 1984 and 85. The sequels were shot back to back. 
never before attempted by a movie studio. The hoverboards didn't really fly. We were hanging by wires from a crane. The manure was made of peat moss, cork, dirt, and food agent that made it sticky. The DeLorean was an inferior automobile and nearly impossible for a person of normal size like myself to enter and exit. There are many tiny plot points hidden in the movie, but I don't know what they are. Among many improvisations on set, I coined the term butthead, as well as make like a tree and get out of here. Third movie was my favorite since I got to learn Western skills like riding, roping, quick draw, and shooting a six-shooter, and a great adventure for a guy from Philly. I told my coworkers in the best light, or I hold my coworkers in the best light, but have no idea what any of them are doing right now. Spielberg was an executive producer of the movie, but Zemeckis directed it. Nobody had any idea that the movies would become a cultural touchstone, but the themes of friendship and adventure moved the audience so powerfully that I felt the need to create this postcard as a time saver. It was the first movie I acted in, if you don't count being killed in the kung fu movie Ninja Turf. Love is more important than material possessions. I made less money than you think. I don't talk about the movies much because I'm busy with stand-up comedy and music performances. Those performances aren't near the magnitude of the movies, but I find them enjoyable and satisfying. So that's the area of my concentration. I performed on The Tonight Show with both Johnny Carson and Jay Leno, but not at the same time. I'm pleased and proud of my acting credits, listed at www.imdb.com. And I'm a painter as well. You can contact me at www.tomwilsonusa.com. Thank you, and God bless you. The I fact love... that he had these printed out and given to fans. <laughs> just... I love how that both communicates a lot of information, hypes up the franchise, and has many jokes. It's kind of a masterpiece. And almost feels like a fuck you for asking me any of this kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> if I remember correctly, Wilson with his stand-up, like if he feels like when he if he starts a set and he feels like there's a lot of Back to the Future fans in there, so the jokes aren't quite working because everyone just wants or is just going like it's Biff, it's Biff, it's Biff. He'll stop the set and do a quick like five minute Q and A session just so the audience <laughs> can get everything out, and then he'll just go back to his set. What a hang up! Isn't that a shame? Like the guy's so talented, and he's forever Biff. Look, Peter Weller has to begin each of his semesters with a RoboCop Q&A. Oh, I would demand that if I was in his class. I would demand a full RoboCop clash. What What was it like to be both man and machine? <laughs> Can Tell I call you Kane. Murphy or Professor? Tell us about those metal underpants. How did you move? Can we talk about How many about times did you have to pretend to catch the keys? <laughs> God, nobody can be perplexed by literally everything quite like Crispin Glover. And look at that. All of his notepad. <laughs> All right, and we, uh, we move past the scene, but it was fascinating seeing the extended version of the Darth Vader scene on the Blu-ray for two reasons. One, I never realized Marty sleeping with his ass in the air was set up to a joke about <laughs> a Glover sleeping in the exact same position. I just thought that was a weird thing, Michael J. Fox. <laughs> That's how people pass out in bed. Also, look, it's the coolest yes. George McFly will ever be <laughs> while still making it look dorky as hell. Chalk, uh, milk, chocolate. Just someone randomly face. Someone just randomly slings that to him like they were waiting for someone to order a fucking milkshake. Sorry, and I cut off your second point, I <laughs> But more importantly, 
that's just a, a textbook example of the economy of this movie in, it, in its final form. Because uh, in the uh, commentary, Gale just flat out says, yeah, after my name is Darth Vader, I come from the planet Vulcan. Why is the scene still going? That's the funniest joke. Like, <laughs> the other jokes are funny, but he says those two things. Smash cut to Darth Vader came down from the planet <laughs> and told me I had to ask Lorraine or he'd melt my brains. That's boom, boom, boom. That's a, like a three-part joke. Why would you have anything else there? Another moment of happy happenstance. George McFly says his density lines, like this weird whisper, like, yes, I'm George McFly. And uh, apparently that was the lucky accident of uh, uh, Crispin Glover losing his voice during production. So he was just trying to say his lines, but really only had like a, a hoarse whisper that he could get him out in. But it's such a weird way to say that stuff. It fits the moment perfectly, but it feels so awkward. Which I have to say, that is such a terribly awkward scene. I, I have a hard time getting through watching it. Oh, yeah. Just the, just, I'm your density, and the disgusted look he gets from the girls in the back. But I, I do like the fact that Lorraine is actually kind of into it. Like, someone's talking to her, and she's just like, hey, cool, attention. This guy's not so bad. He's cute in his own dweeby way. A detail I never really got until recently, like the adoring look she gives him when she's curious about it while everyone else is disgusted. Oh, yeah. There's a, you actually pay attention. There's actually a lot planted between uh, Lorraine and George, so it's not actually as out of nowhere at the end as you think. Yeah. Lorraine is not as like, super focused on, quote-unquote, Calvin Klein as it appears at first. Yeah, Lorraine Baines is, like, secretly, both acting-wise and writing-wise, one of the greatest female characters of the 80s. There's so much going on with her from scene to scene. Like a surprising amount of complexity. Marty, you dick! All of his papers! Those Goosebumps books are spreading throughout the 50s now. Okay, so now is a Perfect time in my mind to talk about Alan Silvestri's goddamn <laughs> stud of a score. Listen to it. I he really moved. liked that I stopped right as the score swelled. I was like, yes, I did it. <laughs> the man scores. Uh, I, I mean, this is, I would say, his most famous set of scores, Back to the Future 1, 2, 3. He, he's done tons of other things, like he, he did the score for the first Avengers film and set that theme for the other composers to pick up and run with. He did the score for Predator. You know, he's done famous things. But this is Silvestri's hallmark in my mind. This and is it Williams. Makes, it, uh, it makes the movie. Without that triumphant big score, I think this movie goes from being a fun romp to an epic adventure. Oh, yeah. The size is doubled by those swelling chords. Like, he just he just makes the movie feel so much bigger with the music. Plus, I, I really love the story in the documentary that Spielberg was watching a rough cut of the film with temp music and some score, and he kept complaining that he didn't think Sylvester is the right man for the job. And while a scene like that was going where Sylvester is really hitting it, he leaned over to one of the bobs and said, this is the score you should have, some John Williams stuff. And they had to tell him, well, that that is the score the movie has. <laughs> that's that's it. <laughs> that's, that's Sylvester. And he backed off after that. Like, he went, okay, I understand now. 
Well, something I found uh, really enlightening uh, that uh, Bob Gale said was the influence of Frank Capra is all over both everything he and Zemeckis does that do, oh, do together, the but also this movie. Move. Just, just if you ever watch a Capra movie, characters are fucking flopping around and moving. <laughs> They move like these characters do. And it's it's a point I probably wouldn't connect naturally, but it, it makes sense when someone says it. Definitely explains a lot of part two. But uh, that just goes back to the like the Silvestri score. Like Frank Capra movies, both cinematography-wise and with the music, weren't filmed like quaint little family movies. Like It's a Wonderful Life is scored like it's an epic like it's King Henry VIII or something. <laughs> like it's scored like it's the Ten Commandments, which gives you know, gives it that larger than life feel when it's just a story about some guy in a town. For what it's worth, I think this might be the funniest moment in the movie, and I always forget it exists. <laughs> By and large. I mean, the third act of every old Doctor Who episode. Just just the look on Doc's face when the car starts a fire, and the fact the car starts a fire, and Marty is just, oh no. <laughs> oh, as a kid, the, uh, the, the fact that there were models always destroyed me. He <laughs> took all the time to make the rest of the town, even though the car goes in a straight line. Did he already and have he the have models? He didn't have time to paint it. <laughs> The ghost the time on the so seat long. follows the seat, watches it move. The fire starts. <laughs> that gasp. And, and once again, what I love, if this is a modern movie, there'd be like a pratfall sound effect or score or something. There's nothing really in seeing the scene calling attention this is even a joke. It's just, yes. it's a joke because it's a joke. I think in the hands of lesser filmmakers, that fire would have just engulfed the barn. Like oh, the yeah. whole garage would have gone up in flames right there to really sell. Like, oh no! Instead, it, like he puts it out in three seconds. It doesn't matter. It doesn't hamper the plot. But it gives Doc that great moment of ooh. Also, I love Doc's uh, garbage can filled with paint cans and oily rags. He keeps around. No wonder that place burned down eventually. <laughs> I'm Doc Brown, and I don't want to be in this scene. God, now that I think about it, it is incredible restraint that they didn't just cut to the mansion being burned down, and that's how it happened at this time. <laughs> oh, I'm yeah. sure that popped into their head for a second. Like, no, that's too much. <laughs> My favorite Christopher Lloyd performance in this movie. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of, you know, young Frankenstein. He's really playing like the Frankenstein monster for half Very it. much it's, so. It's the wide-eye. Mm. It's, a, it's a very good Peter Boyle impression. Well, it made a lot of sense whenever I uh, heard Lloyd say that he based his performance on the, compo- the composer uh, Leopold's, Leopold Stokowski. He's apparently... Because, of course, Christopher Lloyd is a huge classical music buff. <laughs> look at videos of Stokowski conducting, and yeah, you can kind of see some Doc Brown in there. It's very much what you picture in your head, what an old-timey conductor would be. He's very Looney Tunes. Well, it makes sense. they got to sell the motion so everyone in the back, you got to play playing fucking tuba understand what's going on. 
This is uh way, 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 way back in the movie. But we talked over it, so I didn't have a point to mention. There was a Ronald Reagan was a president joke, and those never get old. Like, people are still making those jokes now. But I feel like in the future, if we go five years to the future, those are going to be eventually supplanted by Donald Trump was a president jokes? Like, that's my hope. Like, in ten years, everyone's going to be like, what's a weird thing you guys did? He was a TV guy. America won't exist in five years, Cody. <laughs> we can yeah, all yeah, we'll, dead we'll, by then. We'll be watching live streams from President PewDiePie. Oh, God, kill me now. I just, I, you know, it's, I mean, it's never occurred to me Glover was doing that with holding a bra. Huh. I never noticed that either. <laughs> well done, Glover. Well done. You know, that was a decision he made. <laughs> now, it may have just been an, an actual reaction. We don't know. We don't know what his romantic life was like in 1984. <laughs> That's why he wasn't interested in Lorraine. He was getting it left and right. <laughs> Going back to the Reagan thing, like another thing I never noticed until this month, the subtle, subtle joke of a shitty Ronald Reagan movie playing for half off. <laughs> at the theater that in Marty's time just plays all American orgy. <laughs> I'm sure there was um, about 800 other jokes in this movie we've never noticed. Well, that's the thing, too. I bet a lot of this would work much better if this was the 80s. You know, like, uh, we understand when Marty's in the diner and he asks for a tab what he's asking about or a pepsi free but i mean the pepsi free is more context because we don't have pepsi free anymore uh but i mean culturally we know what tab is i think don't they make tab again i, I don't know yeah. I, I think that joke probably played a little more when those were new novel concepts instead of like things that were either extinct and brought back or just extinct but I'm sure the movie's filled with that kind of stuff, really. It's it's not trying too hard to not be a product of the 80s. Well, something that absolutely blew my mind when I heard uh, Zemeckis and Gale say it during a Q&A, which is the ending of this movie that everyone in our uh, post-cracked uh, media landscape likes to make fun of for all of its, you know, it's materialistic, mean-spirited, Reagan-era overtones is supposed to be a joke. I think Zemeckis flat says, yeah, nobody in America seemed to get that. The people, like the reviewers in Europe thought it was funny as hell. But yeah, people just took that at face value. It's just something that lives and dies the time that it it was created like it wasn't really saying anything necessarily. It's it's only through the passage of time that it starts to look like something else. You know, at the at the time it was just the ending of the movie is everyone's happier, Lorraine's not an alcoholic, George found himself. So through that they're just more successful. Like, and it's, you know, kind of like, yeah, that's kind of the 80s American thing, is you get kind of, you're, you're kind of yuppies. 
It's both a joke and just kind of sincere, and it's only in the modern context that it looks like, oh, it's, they're, you know, Reagan's America yuppies, and thank God Marty has a new car and shit. Yeah, I feel like it's supposed to play a way more, not cartoony, but like, almost like a the Wayne's World one super happy ending. Yeah. Like, oh, they're they're the richest people in town, and he, <laughs> yeah, he has a new car. And it's like a funny part effect. of that is 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 uh, kind of a retrospective opinion of it from the the Bobs. I want to get into that at the end of the movie. We can focus on what's going on now. But I have thoughts. <laughs> I'll save for later. So just a moment before this. We saw Doc Brown essentially bribe a police officer to let him do weird science experiments he doesn't understand in the middle of town. Oh, you mean that scene where it plays out like he, it's a noir and he's going to kill the cop with like a crowbar he has in the trunk? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's the hint of darkness that sets up this scene where all of a sudden Lorraine is taking drinks of alcohol. She's smoking cigarettes uh, in a much darker, not funny sense. Uh, it, Biff comes to like fucking date rape her in a second. Like, the movie actually has a lot of darkness that rears its head right now-ish. And some of it's played off for laughs. Some of it's just kind of, you know, they shrug and say, hey, this is bad. But I, I like the, the hint that we're going to get into it more with Doc doing that little bribe. Because that was easily a scene they could have just ignored. Yeah. It, once again, it's something that I think is really missing from a lot of comedies today that this has a tone that just exists in Back to the Future, much in the same way Ghostbusters has a tone that exists purely in Ghostbusters. It's not... There's no notes going, ah, this needs to be more family-friendly, or this needs to be more... I mean, granted, it's got turned down throughout the early 80s because it wasn't Porky's. But, you know, there's no there's no forcing of a specific tone, where, so it can, like, make these weird, random, dark jumps between... Something that's fairly, like, Saturday afternoon at the movies with Grandma to <laughs> Biff nearly date-raping Lorraine, and it's like... It's something unto itself. Yeah, that's, that's another thing I, I... Like I said, it's kind of missing from modern movies, is the escalation of tension, not through direct conflict or through action, but through a darkening of tone. Which is something, especially movies from the 80s, pulled off very well. I'm sorry, something really gross is on the screen. <laughs> oh God, something's awakening inside of me, Marty. Thank God this isn't just Futurama. Of course she's your grandmother. It was such a no-brainer when uh, the two Bobs were explaining that their light bulb moment of how to uh, resolve this plot was having Lorraine be the one to resolve it. And be the one to back off. Like, oh, that's actually fucking brilliant. Then, <laughs> And you get yeah. the funny joke line. Yeah, that's something I really appreciate just from a screenwriting standpoint. You have that, and then you have George's hero turn ending up having nothing to do with anything Marty's doing. Yeah. 
it turns out Marty's scheme doesn't work at all. George just makes the decision himself to be a bigger man. Like that's that's genius character work. But it does set it up nicely because Marty's scheme gets George to the right place to make that decision on his own. Yeah, they, which works out. It's not like he just shows up randomly. He goes there to do their plan and then realizes the situation has changes. It changed and he adapts accordingly. But yeah, I like they, it. Ties everything together well while still giving agency to the characters. They can kind of have their cake and eat it too. There. Also, I love the clown car filled with jasmine. <laughs> Also a weird thing, because the movie is pretty whitewashed until this point. Like, there's one other black character, and we see him just working in a store, and everyone just treats him regular, like, ah, he's the help. And right here, we finally get a first, like, real bit of racism, like, 50s true racism, when one of them gets called a spook. And it's just a weird intrusion of all of a sudden, like, oh, right, the 50s were kind of terrible. One of the weird things, if you ever read, you know, Time travel science fiction. For white people, great. Go to the past. It's a fun time. If you're black and like someone says, hey, we've got a time machine that goes to the 1800s, your response would be, no, thank you. Perfectly fine not going to the 1800s. If you are literally anybody but an old British man, you should not time travel. Peter Cushing can time travel. That's it. Yeah. If anyone's ever read Kindred, it's, it's one of those situations like, nope, don't do it. It's going to be okay for your white husband. Everyone else will be miserable. Also, going back to just how so much of this movie works because it's played straight and filmed like it's not a comedy. This scene is legitimately horrifying. It's yeah, it's it's dark, and even the score yeah. reflects that too. It takes on a different timber, and it's, it's you know trying to impress upon you. No, this is pretty bad. It's it's filmmaking over pigeonholing a genre. Very much so. I got that fucking fish look that Glover gets. <laughs> now that perfect twist. <laughs> that has to be one of the most hard hitting punches in movie history. And it's from Crispin Glover. We have such a long buildup for it, and the score building it up, and it just kind of transitions from a horror moment into this kind of love theme. The score sells what a dramatic change has just been made by this one punch. There's something very magical about it specifically being the Back to the Future theme playing romantically. It makes you feel like everything you've been watching has been part of this one epic adventure. So earlier, Mike, you made the point that everything in the film – oh, wait, here's some weird story logic. Bob's point out, we understand that it doesn't make any sense that people would slowly disappear from a photo. But, I mean, hell, the audience understands it, right? You see people slowly disappearing from a photo, you know Marty's only got so much time before he's screwed. It's just a good visual indicator of the situation. It doesn't make sense, but who cares? This movie is all fake. I was making a point before that, but I've forgotten it, so we'll just have to leave it. You said I brought something up, and you're going to expand upon it? Well, no, I'm not, because I can't remember what it was. 
We'll talk about it halfway through part three. I remember it now. I remember it now. Mike, uh, the point you brought up earlier about <laughs> the movie's story being set up to constantly build on itself, and there's not fat. Everything is in service of this has been set up. This must be executed. This, I feel like, was the stumbling point. And even the filmmakers, I think, would recognize the same. You have that triumphant moment with George where he smacks Biff, and the photo starts coming back to life, and you realize, hey, things are working. And, and you really could have actually ended the movie there. You could have been like, hey, good, George and Lorraine hook up. Marty just has to get to the future. Instead, we have several climaxes. We have this moment where they have to have Marty finish the song. We have George have to kiss Lorraine. We have to get Marty back to the future. And then the epilogue where he has to meet his new family and deal with Doc coming back into his life and Doc not actually dying. The movie's moving so smoothly, it actually feels like the punch-out should be the conclusion and then a couple of minutes just to wrap things up. But instead, there's a lot of film left. There's so much going on after this. In my mind, it kind of starts a start-and-stop feel that doesn't flow as naturally as the rest. The movie has so much goodwill, I can deal with it. But it kind of makes you feel like, oh, it's time to use the bathroom. I, I, well, maybe not. I guess there's more happening. Are the eagles coming now? Can I go? What's happening? <laughs> I feel like I understand uh, your point. Always, I'm sorry. That was my favorite shot in the movie of Marty hopping back up kind of magically. <laughs> they, they kind of speed His ramping. legs are back. <laughs> they just kind of, I don't know if it's like reverse footage or if they speed ramped it slightly to get him to hop back up and play the guitar. But that weird cinema language of, he's healthy now, works so well. I love it. It's hokey, but I love it. Well, I agree with you to a certain extent that as far as uh, the construction of this movie goes, this is the part that's maybe the, sh the shakiest screenplay-wise. But, I, again, going back to like the stuff with George's character, it's really satisfying that they put one final button on it that, no, no, it's actually George's his decision to go after Lorraine. Like yeah. he actually has been changed by this experience. Yeah, He's not going to push him around. Yeah, it's can not just all just one rosebud. Yeah. Like he, he has to prove his character worth. And here Marty gets to show off his rock and roll skills, which was set up before, but it really feels like they're just trying to prove a set piece point. Like here's him inventing rock and roll. Well, I think, I think the Johnny B. Good thing is kind of wonderful for two reasons. One, it, it is payoff for Marty invents rock and roll. It's a funny joke. But two, it's also okay. He has he has resolved the problem of George and Lorraine getting together. He fixed it. Um, he made things better, even though we don't quite know to what extent yet. But he fixed it. So this is the movie stopping and going. Want to just celebrate how much fun this is for a minute? It just throws itself a party. Yeah, like well, they, they had a hard time it, throwing this in because they realized like it's kind of a break from story-driven scenes. Oh, in a modern this, film, this this would, the studio would be trying to remove this so much right now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of it. It's not essential to the plot. It's just kind of a fun moment to have. And from a pacing standpoint, I would agree that you could just drop it. But, you know, it's a classic moment of the film, too. It pays off. People appreciate it. So maybe it's wiser to sacrifice some of the smoothness of the plot for the jankiness of the fun of the moment. Yeah, and it gets a nice breather before we get into, um, you know, the next tense bit when we get to the conclusion of the other issue that Marty has to deal with. But 
I, I think it says a lot the Johnny B. Good bit is considered like this amazing like classic piece of cinema everyone kind of remembers and it's referenced a lot and and in the context of the film it means nothing. I think it's like a it's almost like a screenwriting lesson. It's like not you can have something be classic, be great. And it doesn't necessarily have to serve any part of your story. You just have to do it correctly and pick your moment and pick your spot. Also, I think it's very, very small, but you do get kind of a nice small character moment with Marty kind of bombing yeah. and not caring. Yeah. Like, it seems oh, our rock I... and roll is never invented in the future because he fucks up so bad here. <laughs> and <laughs> and he gets to be the, the guy playing on stage, which is like his dream. So it's it's a nice double, you know, kind of double thing going on between, you know, Marty and his family. Like, George has found himself and Marty gets to do what he's always wanted. It's a little weird, though, that Marty just finished fucking up the previous song. Like, he, he's dying, so he can't quite finish the chords. The band has only met him, like, ten minutes ago when he popped out of their trunk and claimed he could pay, play guitar. And then all of a sudden, they turn around and they go, Hey, why don't you show us some new music? Uh, it's the 50s, and he's white. Like, you were just allowed <laughs> to do whatever you wanted. You take over True. the band, it's yours. It's it's one of those deals where sometimes movies have funky plotting, but as long as you have goodwill going, people will just brush it off. Hey, sometimes a lobster talks. <laughs> what lobster are you eating? And then we just end the commentary there. <laughs> the movie's not even done. We just all go home. I will, I will never get tired. Oddly specific advice. <laughs> I will never get tired of the sweet, emotional Back to the Future theme. <laughs> so I like to think whenever Marty makes his exit there, Lorraine just uh, says to George, that's a really sweet kid, that Calvin Clyde. Too bad he's gay. Because <laughs> honestly, what else does it, Lorraine think after that scene? <laughs> it makes the most sense in, in fiction. So to this day, I will occasionally just look at various things whenever I'm waiting and just say, damn. Damn, damn. The lawsuit from Christopher Lloyd is a staggering amount. Like, it might go so much money if it ever goes to trial. I was God. frozen today. That was one thing I actually wanted to bring up. Is Part of the magic of this movie in general is it's a family movie that's a little bit naughty, but yeah. your parents can't really say you can't watch it. And what a things in particular I'll, I've always loved is that little bit of selective cursing. <laughs> like, uh, Marty shouting bastard at the beginning of the movie when, it's the Livians! <laughs> is the... <laughs> that was the first time I ever heard the word bastard, and I used it in casual conversation, like, at some point when I was, like, three, oh, not three, but, uh, like, four or five and got sent to my room, that's burned into my brain as the first time I ever got in trouble for cursing. See, the same thing because happened to me with. Fly. 
Wild Wild West got me. I was watching that movie and Will Smith says something like, damn, and I was just like, ah, oh, that sounds cool. Will Smith is cool. So I said it to like a friend in casual casual conversation, and then she was like, what? You said a terrible thing, and then tattled on me immediately to my family. But your friend tattled to your mom? Exactly, yeah. It was a betrayal. We're not <laughs> friends so anymore. Strange. We don't talk. That was the end of a friendship. It's fucking narc. I was a, having a fun time swimming in July, and all of a sudden I couldn't say damn anymore. I love how Marty and Doc are best friends. I know. <laughs> with time. no backstory or explanation. Because <laughs> you don't need it. You don't fucking need it. Why? How does the flux capacitor work? I don't know. The plot is Marty it's travels only... backwards through time. This isn't Primer. <laughs> Shut up. That's, that's what was fascinating about it. Uh, there's a, a uh, little mini documentary on one of the Blu-ray discs where they speak to Dr. Michio Kaku about how the time travel is portrayed in the movie. And you go into it expecting a Neil deGrasse Tyson takedown about how, oh, no, no, that's that's not how quantum physics works. Literally, the only thing that's inaccurate about the science that's portrayed in this movie is you'd need a lot more energy than 1.21 gigawatts to travel through time. <laughs> that's it. Everything you can't else get is the science wrong if you don't portray the science. Like this, like I'll, there have been many, many famous accredited physicists who have gone on record as saying. Back to the Future is literally the only movie that gets time travel correct. Yet it's the one that's always, like, gets the most jokes about about its use of time travel. Well, I mean, DeLoreans can't actually go up to 88 miles per hour, so there, there's one problem with reality. Depends how much cocaine you put in that gas tank. The cars only went to 85! I don't care about the drugs! <laughs> <laughs> you say... <laughs> fucking Ralph Nader, Cody... <laughs> The war on DeLoreans has begun. Now, we are going to get some pissed off DeLorean fans listening to this commentary. I hope you know. They look so cool from the outside, but I'm I'm a tallish person. I wouldn't fit inside one well. I'd bang my hands against the inside. I need room. <laughs> Everyone who owns a DeLorean swears it's an incredible car, and I don't know if that's because that's true or... It's just so hard to get and restore one. You don't want to go that far and then say it's a bad car. I feel like if I had a DeLorean living in Minnesota, like, forget about it. I'd drive around the winter and that little roller skate would just go directly into a snowbank and they would not find my corpse until, you know, June. (laughs) 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 The bells! Hey, statue from cat people. That still fucking blew my mind, melted my brain. It makes sense. Props just sit around and wait to be reused. Kind of like the the comic book earlier in the film, when Marty crashes into the barn, was reused in an episode of 30 Rock. Even though, or not 30 Rock, 30 Rock from the Sun. That's what I have to say. Just because Universal had that on the prop, I don't know, shed? Wherever they keep comic books? Shit. It's not from a real comic book. It's just one they made up for this movie, and it just sat around. So someone must have used it and went, oh, here's your sitcom. Use this to read. 
I love stock props. The reason Jason is technically a deadite. <laughs> I connected a creep show. <laughs> Fucking random. Uh, going back to uh, what we were saying earlier about the uh, how how you, this movie proves that you only need as little setup as possible if you can sell like what's in the movie. Uh, one of the most profound moments I had, like listening to Bob Gale just talk about why the scenes that were cut out of the movie were cut, is every single scene that they had to cut out of the movie is either characters discussing the plot of the movie with no new information or answering questions that the audience didn't have. Like, uh, one of the deleted scenes is Brown opening us up the suitcase that uh, future Brown put in the DeLorean, and you see the hair, uh, the sorry, the hair dryer. And, yeah, there's nothing to that scene. It's literally just there to establish that there's a hair dryer for the Darth Vader scene. And nobody ever asks why he has a hair dryer in his belt. Yeah, that yeah, never that's... occurred to me. Nope, never thought about that until you mentioned it. Now the movie's ruined. Yeah, it's like that's that's something I've been thinking about so much as far as like my my own writing. It's like, yeah, you a lot of a lot of really good writers do waste time answering questions the audience does not have. Well, you know, somewhere back in the day, someone watched the movie and then complained about, oh, there's a hair dryer for no reason. And if that movie was made, if this movie is made today, they'd have internet forums where they could go and complain about it, and it'd become an, just a huge problem. Oh, Bob Gale is enraged to this very day by a letter he got from a young Japanese boy pointing out that Marty's letter at the end doesn't match the one he writes in the diner. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I mean, I'm, I'm slightly exaggerating my point from before. I, I think <laughs> in the current age where you can easily screen cap and, you know, go frame by frame through a movie, it's very easy to pick out all these continuity things, and fans will go through and find them and share them much easier than they could before. But if a movie's good, people are just going to shrug and kind of just go, whatever, I don't, I don't care. They'll, they'll be fine with there being... Incongruity, incongruities. Uh, but if the movie isn't working for them, those are the first things that are going to bring up. Those are the surface details they're going to throw a fit over. Or if they're just a terrible person, they'll just throw fits over it anyways. I shouldn't put it just on the time. I, I think sometimes people are just crappy fans. <laughs> I want to take a moment to mention something. Uh, a large... Uh, an unsung facet of film that's not talked about, but god damn it, is Back to the Future a masterclass in its sound design. Oh, definitely. Everything in this sequence from a sound design perspective <laughs> is just, it's delicious. <laughs> the weird X-Wing sound with the DeLorean <laughs> moving around. This is like sound design like it's Star Wars. Yeah. I don't know, guys. Is it any Bohemian Rhapsody? Well, topical way, humor. Way to date us. <laughs> all, all those close-ups. But yeah, it's 
it's, it's another way of just taking something that could have just been really not that much of an ending for a, a two-hour movie. Just Doc Brown has some difficulty connecting a chord. <laughs> but just the way it's shot and the, the most impressive sounding lightning ever, that universal monster movie lightning, <laughs> like it just makes it feel like this is the end of the world. Well, I, I should mention, too, I, I said before that the clock tower actually burned down on the universal backlot. It burned down because of a lightning strike. <laughs> <laughs> Only fitting. I am pretty sure they rebuilt it like the same way just for fans to see it and go, oh, the clock tower. And again, they use it for like a thousand other things anyways. See, what they should have done was make the clock start working after that. (laughs) (laughs) I love this so much. This movie can make one so giddy. (laughs) Then I just wait for Mario to run, run behind them. You expect it every time. <laughs> That's the incredible thing about this franchise. It's like this and Evil Dead are the only three movies you can watch as one long movie. Like even the Lord of the Rings trilogy has time jumps. And because of that, everything just kind of melds together in your head. Yeah. Boy, I don't know about you guys, but I really want some California raisins. <laughs> the product placement that went horribly awry. Yeah, this is one of my favorite behind-the-scenes stories ever. Like, apparently a shady dude from their, like, product synergy department like wanted them to shove raisins into every scene after making a deal with the California Raisins Board. Because apparently they promised them that they would do for raisins what E.T. did for Reese's. So in that version of the movie, we were just going to have these weird David Lynch scenes of everyone just eating delicious, delicious raisins. Just bowls (laughs) of shoveling bowls of raisins. Crispin Glover eating dramatically a bowl of raisins. And what I love is Zemeckis asked, like, what, like, specific brand of raisin? Just raisins. The concept of raisins. Raisins. (laughs) Give us the raisins. Dry the grapes. Feed them to us. (laughs) What's maybe more insane is whenever they reduced the product placement down to just that park bench, the board was fucking livid because they'd already paid the studio in full, (laughs) like for complete brand integration. And they threatened Universal with a lawsuit and the Bobs took the side of the California Raisin Board over the studio that had produced the movie they just filmed. There was <laughs> no, a moment they clearly where, screwed those raisin folks over. There was a moment where Robert Zemeckis had to go, I'm sorry, Universal. I'm siding with the California Raisin Board over you. I'm taking <laughs> the raisins. So yeah, Universal just had to refund their check, so that is... 100% free product placement in one of the biggest movies of all time. To be fair, to be fair, the product placement here is a homeless guy sleeping on your bench. It's not really a great association for the raisin folks. And it's product placement for raisins. 
the yeah. concept of raisins. It might have been worse if like the Libyans were eating raisins before they murdered Doc Brown. <laughs> yeah. I love how torn up Marty is by dead Doc Brown. <laughs> My only friend. That's something I, I really love about this is there is such like conviction in relationships in this movie you do, you really don't see especially with like teen movies which this is like this is a teen movie yeah. technically but it's like marty and doc are best fucking friends like doc is almost like a surrogate father or big brother to marty and marty and jennifer are truly in love no bullshit there's nothing more to their life. they are just like sincerely in love which you also don't see very often yeah like, Marty is a very sincere character. I think that's why he's kind of stood the test of time. But also flawed, which makes him fun. Like, when he's talking to his girlfriend and then immediately starts checking out other girls in front of her. <laughs> well, like, what is Marty, it, chicken? Marty, dingbat. Uh. <laughs> Alright, so to return to an earlier point, Marty's gonna walk into his room, fall asleep, wake up, and then see the changed version of his family. His dad is going to now be a, a successful something who happens to be an author. Goes out with his wife to play tennis. They're wearing nicer clothes. It's a nicer house. His siblings are now more successful as well. His brother has an office job. His sister has tons of boyfriends. Marty owns a brand new truck. And the debate here is... Are they going too far in showing that success means money? If you have money, are you happy? Now, one opinion that the Bobs have given is this was kind of made as a, a bit of a joke, kind of commenting on the times, you would say, of the 80s-ness of it all that other places got. My concern with this comes from Crispin Glover. <laughs> so inside the commentary, Gail makes many mentions that Glover was unusual and hard to work with. Uh, one of the things he really stresses was in this last scene, they had a hell of a time filming because Glover refused to wear the clothes they wanted him to wear. And he frames it as just an unusual request. Like he just hated wearing those specific tennis clothes. If you go out and listen to interviews with Glover, he frames it in a different way. And he says his complaint was he objected to the content of the ending. When he was reading the script, he felt it was way too materialistic, and he felt that happiness was tied too closely to the material gains the characters made. And Zemeckis apparently chewed him out for this because he felt it was a fun joke, and he was making too much of this thing and didn't want to rewrite it. So in, in Glover's mind, the way he portrays this in recent interviews a couple of years back, not It's not the clothes specifically he's mad about. It's the fact that he's dressed up as a yuppie when he felt he should have been still kind of like a middle management kind of guy who's just more confident now. And that's what his complaint was. And Bob Gale hated this and was mad at working with him from this. And in the sequel, when he wasn't brought back in, Gale kind of screwed him over. There was a lawsuit. And Glover feels that the bad blood kind of tainted Gale's commentary. If you look at the two points, that one Glover just hated to wear clothes and was screaming about it, or that Glover was an actor and really didn't feel this fit how the movie should go, 
I, I feel like I would tend more towards Glover's portrayal of the story. I mean, it, the truth has to lie somewhere in between. I don't think any one character in here is 100% right in their telling of the story or honest. Uh, I do think it is important to take into fact that Glover is kind of an insane asshole as well. He yeah, didn't want to wear a tank top. In the interviews he's done, like, he seems pretty well-controlled and explains his point in a fairly rational way. Like, he's not screaming at Anthony and Opie, like, I was robbed! So I, I kind of, I, I, I trust him a little bit on it. I feel like Gail taking the time to, you know, smack-talk him on a Blu-ray commentary where he's not involved is a bit of a low blow, which prejudices me against his point of view. Well, I mean, Glover was a total dick when it came to, you know, what happened after this with the lawsuit and all that, which was just Glover wanting money. I love Glover. Well, we'll get into that too, because but, there's a, oh, there's <laughs> a lot of so very so different related to the compared movie. to Bob Gale on that point as well. But that's a that's a sequel talk moment. Um, I'm sure Glover was probably semi self aware about this ending a bit. Um. I really don't think it was much of an intent. The material value of this ending was really on many people's minds and they were making it. I think it's something that kind of exists as a middle class white American dream from the 80s. So it really only works in the year 1985, really. Uh, when, you know, it's just more or less saying George asserted himself more and things were happier, so the rain's on alcoholic, and everyone had a better upbringing, and... Yeah, you know, but you can make all those points, too, without them being like, hey, the brother's a proper member of society now. He wears a tie and goes to an office. Once again, it was the 80s, though, so that <laughs> is, like, it... Like, you can post... Like, commentate it with that after the fact, but if you look at it purely at the lens of the time there's nothing particularly out of the ordinary about it. What, Michael J. Fox was on Family Ties the exact same time, the most popular sitcom in America. Yeah, well, it's, it's the same thing with uh, the way you can look at Ghostbusters these days and think, oh, there's there's a lot of like weird Reagan deregulation stuff baked in here. That's not really because anybody making that movie was, was in any way right-wing. That was just... What was in the pop culture? Of course we need deregulation. Of course the government's sticking its nose where it doesn't belong. That's common knowledge. It's only with foresight we can look back at that stuff and say, wait, people believe that shit because of propaganda. None of that was true. Yeah. <laughs> Funny and enough, hard... Glover actually used the term propaganda when he's talking about the ending and why he was so mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> that, that sounds like Crispin Glover. And I will say, I as far as like the wardrobing goes... I kind of agree with Glover. I think walk, yeah. wanting to walk out with spiky hair and a tank top was a bit much, but yeah. I do kind of agree. I don't think that version of the future version of George 100% meshes with like where I think George would be. I do kind of see George becoming more of a laid back bohemian dude than a proper yuppie. But then again, like at the same time, it's like, like you said, yeah, that, that's just what being successful looked like. Yeah, I mean, like that if, would have, that ending would have weirded people out if he was just like, like our version of what a, a happy rich person was. If he was like a tech bro in jeans and slippers. Yeah, it's it's almost like shorthand through 
through clothing choice. When, yeah, he should be more of, like, a vaguely, like, be more into accepting his own eccentricities for as being a writer. But, you know, it's also kind of a storytelling shorthand, just dress him successfully and you get the point across. We have to get this movie out on time, for the love of God. <laughs> <laughs> and I do We've already think... had to reshoot half of it because of the change of <laughs> actors. And the idea I, that they had to bring in a separate editing crew just to, just to make sure this was done on time is kind of mind-boggling. Like, you take these scenes, I'll take these scenes. It'll be fine. We'll meet in the middle. <laughs> we'll exquisite oh, corpse, this motherfucker. There's the stories of Zemeckis, like, having to, like, take a fucking plane to go, like, work on editing to then immediately turn around and go back, like, at the end of a day to then head back to filming that for, you know, the... 1 a.m. to 6 a.m. fucking filming schedule they had is bizarre. Yeah, I think it said, what says everything is Zemeckis will not do commentaries for these movies and has gone on record as saying the reason is he does not have a single memory of a single positive experience he had. This was <laughs> this was the horse shoot of his life. <sighs> I can understand that going through and having to fire your lead actor after several weeks of filming because he wasn't funny in your comedy. Oof, that's terrible. Having to cast someone new and then filming around their schedule where you're filming everything until he can show up at like 6 p.m. That's insane. Having to be on the backlog because you don't have enough money. That's insane. There, There's so many problems this movie ran into where they're just desperately trying to get around it really makes lightning in a bottle. They, they got lucky. Those things all work together. And they easily could have broken uh, a less capable film crew. But it, even if you listen, though, to the interviews with the rest of the cast, like everyone thought they were going to get fired. Like, uh, if they can take out Eric Stoltz, how am I safe? If they can take that out Mask. Mr. Hollywood over there. Christopher Lloyd even mentioned that. I was listening to an interview with him. He's like, oh, I didn't know if what I was doing was working. And, you know, I was I was nervous for the first couple of days. And Tom Wilson was the same deal. Like, he thought he was being fired when they brought him into the office to let him know that Eric was being let go. Like, he said he walked in there. They called him in like, we need to see you. He didn't know Eric was fired. He thought it was his turn. They thought he was going kick, to get kicked off set. Then he found out, hey, we're going to fire this guy. We're going to bring in... Michael J. Fox, you're going to refilm your scenes. And he's like, oh, thank God, I'm still getting paid. This is only a second well, movie, though. So, <laughs> you know, a ton of these guys were just convinced, oh, they got rid of them. They they recast this person partway through. They're changing stuff around. I'm doomed. Uh, even, like, the one of the members of Biff's gang was the original Biff before they decided he was too short. So, yeah, it was a, this was a production where anyone could go at any time. Yeah, it doesn't necessarily seem like a fun environment to be in. That's just, like, way too much pressure. And they didn't know this was going to work out. At the time, saying you're going to do a time travel comedy where the main hero goes back in time to make out with his mom? Hard sell, I'd imagine. Written by those guys who made used cars in 1941. Yeah, <laughs> those worked out great. But at Cut least there was Romancing the Stone. There was Romancing the Stone. Also, cut to George McFly upside down in the future. Hey, who's that? Though that actor does deserve an Oscar for doing a Crispin Glover impression. So, there's that. 
Oh, we'll get that. There. I mean, we'll get there. He had Crispin <laughs> Glover face. <laughs> Sounds like a horror movie. It uh, does. It a, was Glover face. Is that a disease I want or I don't want? Uh, how do you feel about rats? Willard just got released on a uh, special edition Blu-ray, and I'm very happy about it. <gasps> what if we surprise people and then we immediately launch into a commentary? For Willard. It turns out this is Crispin Glover month. That's that's it. I would be so happy. Can we talk about the ice scream, man? Yes, we can. Anyways, folks, that was a lie. No, we can't. We're actually done (laughs) with our commentary for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Box Office Pulp. If you want to listen to more of us, you can find us on iTunes. Go ahead, leave us a review. We love those. We're also on Twitter at Box Office Pulp. We've got a Facebook page. We're on Stitcher. If you want to find us, we're out there. Just type Box Office Pulp into the internet. We'll be around. Anyways, folks, this has been Box Office Pulp. Thanks for listening. Make like a tree. That's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. I, I'm tempted for us to record an after credit scene where I come in and say, oh, MB, something has to be done about MB. <laughs> Is he an asshole? Uh, no. And that's it, just no. Why are you <laughs> no, being mysterious? Just, be, just get just in my car. Done about him. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this isn't a time machine at all. <laughs> It just says it's a van with time machine <laughs> drawn on the side with like an SH. Wait a minute, this is a beanbag, and that's a recording of the dark side of the moon. <laughs> oh god, this is Mandy, isn't it? He's just playing time. Uh, am I in a giant bucket filled with Vaseline? I'll never tell. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.